0: word. We're going to read from Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 36. And He told them a parable. Look at the fig trees and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man let's pray heavenly father thank you lord for the opportunity once again to come together with this body of believers and look into your word or we pray that you would give pastor dan wisdom as he sheds your light on the gospel as we're about to hear more from luke lord we praise you for the way that you've given us insight into what's to come help us lord to open our eyes help us to be ready help us to be watchful help us lord to be vigilant be strong so that we can someday stand before you lord give glory to your name thank you lord for the holiday season lord where we can take a moment to especially reflect upon you lord but may that not cease just because the calendar changes lord may we glorify your name in each every day may we be stronger by what we hear today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: If you're a visitor with us, we do want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. A couple people I see back have been here a time or two before, but it's good to see you again. Some people to fill a seat, as we said. A lot of our own folks on the road or just... Staying home, not braving the cold one way or the other, it is good that you are here. <clears throat> These times, I, I'm always thankful for them. I think you know, sometimes when there's a different size congregation or a different feel to the service, um, it is easy to get distracted, but I think there's also a uniqueness to it where the Lord allows the word to be a bit more personal for us and it speaks directly to us, and uh, when we come to the text today, the Lord providentially has placed us in a really good text for coming to the end of a year and a kickoff to the new year. We've been going through Luke for some time now. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Adam was in Luke 21, where we'll pick up today. and Then we went away for a few Advent sermons and now back to uh, Luke It is a timely passage for us because there is encouragement in here for us as we live for Christ, as we try to live out the characteristics of the kingdom that we have seen come to light through the Gospel of Luke. It is timely for us because there is a word of warning and judgment that is pointed that would encourage us to fight laziness, to fight losing Jesus Christ as the center of our life in review, just so we can kind of see how we get to this parable. If you remember um, the beginning of Luke chapter 21, Jesus, well, I guess Jesus, we're in Holy Week now. And so it's kind of these last few days leading to the cross. Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple as Passover week. If you remember, there are hundreds of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem to this massive temple complex. Jesus comes in starts flipping the tables, chasing off the money changers and the robbers, and immediately puts to stop what's taking place here at the temple in the middle of Passover. It's quite a remarkable scene. It's not, you know, a a little room like this, and he's tipping over one of our six-foot plastic tables, and that's that. We're talking a huge scene that Jesus Christ is coming in and just putting a stop to things. And from there, he immediately again kind of begins this challenge, this interaction between the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, these religious leaders in the life of Jerusalem. And while he does that, he is speaking then to the the congregation, the multitudes that gather around, and they are hanging on his words, it says, and the leaders are getting more and more and more irritated and plotting to do away with Jesus, which is just days away. As we come out of that, we come then to this little scene of the widow who is coming and giving her last, two, um, her last little bit of money. And Pastor Adam, as he went through it, explained that this isn't so much a, you know, wow, she's so generous, be like the widow. It continues the condemnation of the religious leaders. She's giving the last little bit that she had to live on. Meanwhile, the religious leaders are living in luxury. They're they're living advancing off the backs of the people. Jesus Christ comes down at the heart of the issue, and that is that those who should be administrating God's covenant to the people in a loving way instead are manipulating in hypocrisy and all outright lying, and what they've end up doing is they're selling access to God. They're selling access to His presence. They're selling access to His forgiveness, to His grace. That's what they're doing when they're selling these sacrifices. When um, <clears throat> they're now taking these, this last bit of money, they're, they're manipulating and lying and advancing and growing wealthy, putting themselves as this arbitrary wall between the people and between God. And Jesus comes and He is disgusted by it. And what it does is they're advancing and they're taking advantage then of the weakest, of the widow, of the poor, of the orphan. Those who kingdom ministry should show we should be moved with generosity and mercy towards them. Instead, this religious system is taking advantage of them and growing wealthy off their back to the point this widow comes giving the very last that she has. And the Pharisees gladly welcome it, yet hold themselves to a totally different standard. And so then we move on. And on that, then, Jesus Christ starts talking about judgment that is coming. And he begins to speak of the destruction of the temple. And as Jesus gives this prophecy, it stretches out. And if you can remember, it, it, often as Jesus gives prophecy, he does so. And if you think there's kind of. A prophetic word, and there's a near reference to it, a near reference. It's going to be fulfilled right here, but there's also something greater and fuller behind it. And so, as he gives this word, it is speaking to the actual destruction of the temple that's going to take place by the Babylonians in 70 AD, just 40 some, you know, about 40 years after Jesus is talking right now. And you see, when they will come in and they will destroy Jerusalem and the temple will be ripped apart. And so as he speaks, there's a kind of an actual, very tangible uh, destruction that is about to take place. But his language, you will see, grows and becomes apocalyptic and, and changes in its nature. That You see, there is a coming day of reckoning or a day of redemption, as he calls it that is drawing near. And there is this near and this far referent that is taking place. You see this language start to build in verses 25 and following. It says, "...and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. This is no ordinary day. Things will be mounting, tensions will be rising to this extraordinary day of vindication. For Jesus Christ and for His people. A day of reckoning. And yet for us should be a day of hope. Look how he finishes there in verse 28. Straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. For those rejecting Christ, it is a terrible moment. It should be a day of dread. One that more than likely they don't believe is coming And they just all together reject it and enjoy the moment or hide from the reality of it. But for us who are hoping in Christ, it should be a day of of anticipation, of hope, of rejoicing. And so now we come to our text today, and Jesus gives a parable in some applications then growing out of this reality. It's a fairly simple text for the most part. It just speaks plainly to us. And so I simply want to just dwell on the plainness of this text. Begin reading in verse 28, or verse 29, I'm sorry. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. He's telling them, he's telling us, you need to pay attention. You need to listen up and take heed to what's taking place right here. The, the parable, the example is pretty easy. When you, when you start seeing the buds on the leaves and all that coming out, you know, oh, spring is coming, summer is near. It's coming. The signs are here that summer is coming and it is near. He's saying when you start seeing what I, I've been explaining, these, this kind of apocalyptic language, when this starts coming upon you, you need to straighten up. You need to take notice. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. You look back at what what he's been saying in the growth of this th- this text, and there's kind of two sort of dynamics taking place. One is this sort of natural uh, catastrophes that are taking place in in the world of nature around us. These cataclysmic events. I mean, think back at 2017, hurricanes and, and floods and. Fires and earthquakes. Things that rock this world that are devastating and that are totally out of anyone's control. You know, the weatherman can predict that it's coming, and that's about it. We can go down and help with some sandbags, but, I mean, it's, it's out of our control. He's saying when you start seeing these things, you know that the end is at hand. <clears throat> then the other... Aspect of it is civil and societal unrest. When you see nations rising against nations, you, you, you see citizens being oppressed. You, you start to see this civil unrest take place. Again, I mean, you look back in the last year, just in the United States, and you see it, let alone you think of other countries where... Uh, Brutal regimes are (laughs) forcing their people to live in in fear with with no freedoms. And there's these two sort of things growing. Now, the point of this is not for me to say, see, all this has grown so I can pick a date now. You know, 2018 is the year of Jesus' return. It it could be, though. That's the point. (laughs) Every generation has seen these things taking place. They'll grow in intensity in some sense, but the promise is that the day is upon us. We live in the end times right now. We've reviewed this several times, this this age to come with this age that is passing away. It is this age we saw back in Luke 19 with the parable of the ten minas, if you remember that, where the king comes and and he visits and he gives this deposit to the people. But the people reject him as king. They don't want him, so he travels away to a far country. But he says, I'm returning, and when I return, you're going to give account for what you've done with this deposit. We see that the deposit is the gospel. We see that that king is Jesus Christ. His rejection is already happening, and it will happen here in the text. We'll see it over the next weeks. And the promise is, he's returning. You'll give account for what you've done with that deposit, with the gospel. What Luke is trying to do, what I want to do for you this morning... Is that this word is spoken to you in the end times, and that's right now, in the last days. Again, not a prediction of a date, of a time, but at the same time to tell you, yeah, it could be 2018, it could be before 2018. So you need to straighten up because the day of redemption is coming. I say straighten up, it's not like get everything in order, get your life in order, although that could be it, but kind of stand ready. Is it going to be a day of terror or a day of redemption? And so as he starts, he he gives this illustration of the fig tree because he wants to put it in a sense of immediacy for you. Don't bury your head in the sand. Look around. The day is right now. He, he continues, and this is the one spot in the text where it can get a little confusing. He begins in uh, verse 32, he continues, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all, until all this has taken place. <clears throat> so what does he now mean then when he talks about this generation won't pass away until everything I'm talking about happens right now? There's lots of... There's a variety of ideas of what that might mean. There's kind of three that probably have some credibility or are defensible at some level. The first of that would be that he is speaking to the immediate audience alone, that, that you audience are going to experience all of these things before you pass away. If that were to be the case, then this whole text is, is limited to the destruction of Jerusalem in that alone, in that everything is going to happen in that next 40 years. I just think the language is, is, that's way too narrow for how the language comes, especially when it starts talking about the return of the Son of Man and using this apocalyptic language. So I don't think the generation there is just referring to those people alive right now. A second option is that when he speaks to the generation, he's speaking more of of race or ethnicity, that is, to the Jewish people. And this is defensible. It happens in Scripture at times, that he would speak to the generation, or gene, kind of as it relates there, to a race, is that he's speaking to the Jewish people. The Jewish people won't pass away. But again, I think that's way too narrow, especially as you move on. In verse 35, as he continues, he makes this comment, For this, what's going to come, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I mean, this is, it seems to be more expansive than just that moment in Jerusalem. And it seems to be more expansive than just the Jewish people. So the third option, which obviously is the one I favor, <clears throat> is that generation is speaking more to pe- a group of people who share the same circumstances and characteristics. That is, It's, it's, it's more to how they are living than when they are living. And the generation would be the age, living in this age between the inauguration of the new covenant, the inauguration of the kingdom with Jesus Christ and his birth and his obedience and his death. In that age until the king returns, the consummation, the final ushering in of the age to come. I think that this fits best for us in the context of how Luke has been developing the gospel. We do see this in Scripture, just to give a little more defense for that interpretation. Genesis 6, if you remember, when the people are destroyed by the flood, he calls them an evil generation. It's more than just the people who are alive at that point. But of what had happened. In Numbers 32, they're wandering in the wilderness, and he characterizes them as a faithless and perverse Generation, you see it again a couple times in the Psalms. There's multiple ones, just a few here. But Jesus speaking of faithless and wicked men, or the psalmist speaking of faithless and wicked men, he asked that God would protect us from this generation Forever characterizing the faithless and wicked men as a generation of people that will be alive in every generation and that all of us would need protection from. And vice versa, in Psalm 14, the promise is that God is with the generation of the righteous forever. Again, those who would share in that characteristic. So why do I I labor on that for a moment? Because I want you to understand that you are the generation. We share in the characteristics in the environment of the generation. So then what does that mean? It means, first of all, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Kind of two things being communicated here. One is that there is going to be tribulation and hardship there is going to be devastation. In this age that is passing away, there's going to be difficulty. And so there should be an expectation of it. And yet there's a promise in there as well. A promise I think is communicated well in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24 and verse 14. Matthew says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, And then the end will come. That is that the promises of God, that is the gospel that He has invested us with, that it will have its total and its complete work before this day comes. It's not coming as a surprise to Christ. It's not like He didn't quite get the work done that He was hoping to, and and somehow He just missed out a little bit. Every prophecy, every promise of God in the gospel, will be fulfilled before this day comes. That is John 17. To think all of the sheep that the Father has given to the Son, he will, he will save them all. He will not lose any of them until this day comes. The gospel is powerful, and it will complete and finish its work. It won't be surprised or upset by this, the day of the Lord coming. The day of the Lord is coming and there is immediacy to it. And as the generation that lives right now awaiting the day of redemption, at any moment, we can take confidence that the promises of God will be fulfilled through the Gospel for us before that day comes. At the same time, we should stand tall knowing persecution, rejection, all of that accompanies this age that is passing away. So then, with that, just three sort of simple things that rise out of the text then. If this is the generation we belong to, and these are the promises and the warnings set before us, how then do we live in the immediacy of these events? Number one, trust the word. Trust the word. I'll begin in verse 32 and read through 33. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just saying that, how firm a foundation. You realize how astonishing this promise is. The words of Jesus will not pass away. Creation might be impermanent. Ground that your chair is sitting on might be impermanent. The Word of God, it is permanent. It will not pass away. It doesn't become irrelevant. It doesn't become hokey and superstitious. Fads come, fads go. Critiques come, critiques go. The Word of God stands. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. His audience, probably this would have been a, a text if they were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures at all, would have known. It says, "...all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades." But the word of our God will stand forever. Every part of the word, its prophecies, its warnings, its promises, they stand forever. I mean, that should immediately begin to reorient our thoughts and our hearts and our minds. We give so much attention and lay so much hope in all kinds of things. We read all the time. We read our, I don't know, Twitter feed, our, all the social media, all these articles, all, whatever it might be. I'm not saying those, it's evil in and of itself. That you know, it all passes away. A lot of it passes away 10 seconds after you read it. But the Word of God stands forever. I heard this illustration a while back. and thought it was cool, but thought it was maybe made up. So I did a little bit of research, and it seems like it's true. So I'll share with you. Um, <clears throat> Voltaire, I don't know, are you guys familiar with the French philosopher Voltaire? A couple of you are. Um, Voltaire lived about 200 years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door there in Wittenberg. He was uh, kind of right in the heart of the age of enlightenment or the age of reason, a philosopher known for being obviously a brilliant guy, very witty, very pointed in his rebuke against uh, the Roman church and kind of the abuses of the Roman church, but really in religion Uh, as a whole and kind of the weakness and the need for a superstition like religion, seeing it belong to the medieval age and the superstition with all of its goblins and fairies and all that. And that was just the Bible growing out. So he was in this leading voice in the age of reason and enlightenment, just saying that's completely nonsense. Reason is going to take over towards the middle End of the late mid seventeen uh, hundreds, he comes to the ends of his life, and towards the ends of his life, he said he put it in print fairly often that as reason, as this age of enlightenment takes over, that outside of like religious historians, the name, the voice of Jesus will be all but forgotten. Within fifty years, it'll be gone. We, we we're moving beyond it finally as a society. Voltaire dies. His estate goes up uh, for sale. He lived in Geneva. His estate goes up for sale. Some of it went different places. Anyways, his main home ended up getting purchased by the Genevan Bible Society. They move a printing press in there, and 50 years after Voltaire's death, they're printing thousands of copies of the Word of God in his home. You know, it's kind of ironic. It's a good story. That's why I thought it was made up. You know, those pastor illustrations are too good to be true. Like, sometimes they are too good to be true. This one seems real. Um, a kind of a clever, ironic story, and yet a lot of truth in it. The, the Word of God stands forever, critiques may grow. Jesus gives us this word to his disciples, to this generation. He's deposited the gospel with you. Again, looking back at that parable, he's going away. He's been rejected. He's going away. But when he comes back, but that deposit, that word of God, it will endure forever. It will stand forever. You're going to face some hardship. You're going to face some persecution. You might not get all that you think are the benefits of this age that is passing away, but it's passing away. The Word of God stands forever. Give yourself to that. I just want to encourage you in Bible reading for 2018. First, I need to confess Bible reading for 2017. We had quite a few people sign up for some of that Bible reading. I went back and looked at my blog posts of my accountability and encouragement to you. It was like January 1 through 10th every day, got a little spotty i got to be honest, I don't think there was a post after May. So that's on me, all right? I uh, didn't keep you very accountable in that. <clears throat> but however you try to do it, reading through in a year, whatever it is, give yourself to the Word. When, when the Word became more available for people through the Reformation and during that time in history... a, a I don't know, a few generations after that, you start to see some of the leaders, they used language of we need to take the Bible back out of the hands of the people. And they didn't, it sounds really negative to say that, but they were saying we need to kind of reshape how you are approaching the word. That after the Reformation, it's not that you only come to the word To prove orthodoxy or to disprove it. And it's simply dogmatic statements that you're approaching it as if it falls on you and you alone to uphold or to topple orthodoxy. It belongs to the church in general. You need to approach the word in your daily devotion, in your life, as life giving. It is living, it is active. When you approach it, you are going to meet the Jesus of the Word. God-breathed Word that as you read it then, in a sense, you feel the breath of God, the breath of Jesus on those pages. It is life-giving. It reorients your mind. It reorients your heart around everything that seems so real all the time around you. then you come to the Word and it redirects you to what reality is, where your meaning really is, where your purpose and fulfillment really are. Sometimes you come to it and it is kind of that overwhelming, moving experience. Other times you come to the Word and it's just the daily plotting and digging that just reminds you, yes, God is true. I need to live to please Him and not the people around me all the time. It's that reorienting, reshaping, life-giving pulse of the Word that we need to give ourselves to, and it never dies. And yes, there are dogmatic imperative statements, and I'm not trying to say those aren't important, but when you come and you see God, you see him in in, in so many different genres, in so full color, if you will, in the Bible. As you see him, even in Luke, you see him as, as that mother hen gathering his brooding the little chickens in around him, as that caring, watchful mother figure. At the same time, you see him in all of his glory with hair, white, wisdom, and and lightning from his eyes, and and, and that flame that comes around him. You see him as transcendent and altogether holy and different and set apart. And we need that full vision of God. We we need that full revelation of Christ to speak to us in our daily life. Of a God who is altogether removed and victorious, and yet a, a God who is so... Caring and condescending, that knows more about us than we'll ever know about ourselves, and yet still loves us and delights in us, as we said in our psalm, the Advent psalm last week, who delights in his people. And when we approach the Word, we should be approaching it in that life-giving type of way. Trust the Word. Number two, I got really creative on this one. Watch yourselves. Verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. Again, the certainty of that. <clears throat> be careful, watch yourself. Basically, what we are watching for, I think, can be boiled down to one word. That's distraction. Distraction. First part of this, drunkenness and dissipation, they, they belong together. Dissipation, <clears throat> be, I don't know, if the Greek has a word for a hangover, that's it. A drunkenness and dissipation. It's appropriate text for New Year's Eve. The drunkenness and dissipation. It, there's two sort of ways it serves as a distraction. One is just that you give yourselves to pleasure in the moment, and that's it. And life's more fun when you're loaded up with alcohol. But I think more often it's that drunkenness and dissipation, because this is a distraction from everything about life that is hurtful and difficult. And when you give yourself to alcohol, you can escape it. You know, Scripture speaks about it. in the Psalms, they talk about the wine that gladdens the heart. And in Isaiah, it speaks of the gospel, it would speak of the milk of the word, those original nourishing things, the meat that you need to get over, then the wine, the joy of life. And so it speaks of it in that idea, and yet it speaks more often about the sin of drunkenness. I think we as a congregation need to be careful about the sin of drunkenness. That it's not just something to toy around with because it doesn't really matter. It does matter. And it becomes a distraction. It becomes more enjoyable to be in that state than to face the disappointments of life. I'm not finding full meaning. I'm not finding full success. I'm not finding fulfillment and joy in this age that's passing away. And to distract me from that disappointment, I'm going to turn to alcohol or some addiction. And I'd rather deal with the dissipation the next morning because it's still better than dealing with reality. He's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at the signs of the time. The day is coming. The day of redemption is coming any moment. And you need to be ready. And you're not going to be ready if you're distracted distracted by turning to alcohol, turning to something that will medicate you from the reality of this life. The problem is, is that when you're living for the here and now, it's not meant to find your full meaning in this age. Your full purpose, your full identity, your full success. It's not even meant to find full validation in this age. And when you are so... Concerned about being validated or praised by others. It's not going to happen here. You find it in the country you belong to, a citizen of the new kingdom, the kingdom that is drawing near. <clears throat> the other distraction then is you see it on there, he just gets a little more general. Um, dissipation and drunkenness, verse 34 in the cares of this life. I think that's where instead of trying to escape the cares of this life through drunkenness, and you grow distracted because this life is all meaningful to you, and so you escape it through drunkenness when it's disappointing, I think the cares of this life means that you just actually give yourself the distractions of this life. Finances, success, career, popularity, whatever. You name it. And you're all in on the cares of this life and you're totally missing the immediacy and the promises that the word never fails and Jesus Christ is coming the day of redemption draws near and the next verse just says it's coming and it's coming for everyone on the whole face of the earth I just encourage you Watch yourself. Take some time. See, how distracted are you that you never actually think about the end, the return of Christ? That's not really your hope. Your hope is, you know, a better year financially than this year. Your hope is, I'm not saying you can't have goals in that way, but when they distract you that you don't live in such a way that the return of Christ means anything to you, That you know the day of redemption is drawing near. That doesn't characterize people of the kingdom. Love, mercy, humility that's what we've seen in Luke that characterizes people of the kingdom. Those who live distracted lives don't enter the kingdom. In seminary, they often, they have a course, you go through all your systematics, and often um, the curriculum will combine eschatology and ethics, so it'll be a class eschatology and ethics. When I was going to seminary, I thought, I really thought it was just like, you know, they can't fill an entire semester with eschatology, so they just add ethics to it. But the more you're in the Word, the more you see the Lord combines eschatology Simply the end times, what you believe about the end times with ethics, how you live now. You've heard that, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You know what they mean, but the scripture would say the exact opposite. Living in the reality of the return of Christ should totally change the way you live right now. The way you're generous, the way you love mercy the way that you pursue Christ and His Word, the way you make priorities, the way you invest in others. Living with that reality of the return of Christ should change the way we live now. And then finally, is pray purposefully. Pray purposefully. Verse 36, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There's kind of a two-edged sword here of both the promise of needing to escape, that there is judgment that you do not want to endure, and a beautiful promise Glorious note of standing before the face of God. I think a better translation of this passage, I think the King James puts it this way, is it would read, Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. Be accounted worthy. Again, not that you have done anything on your own, We talked about the debtor's ethic before. It's not that God has given you grace and then you do lots of great things to repay Him and now you're worthy. The more good you do, it's just more indication of God's grace in your life. The further you go into debt, your worth is Jesus Christ. It is resting in Him and obeying Him by His grace, by the Spirit. It is not a self righteous working. It is not a trying of merit gaining. But it is a resting and pursuing of Jesus Christ. And prayer helps in this. Prayer is so important in this. We're all bad at prayer. and We all need to get better. (laughs) Because prayer takes our mind and it refocuses uh, on reality. Because we get so clouded by this age that is passing away that... Right now, we believe, yeah, the immediacy of Christ coming, but, you know, he hasn't come for a long time. It doesn't seem like he's going to come right away. And so we don't think about it anymore. And it doesn't change the way we live. And we're not standing, watchful, ready. Going to God in prayer refocuses and takes all the things of this world that cloud the reality of that and kind of help us refocus and and see the realness of Christ in his word. And again, not every time of prayer, most often the times of prayer aren't these dynamic overwhelming movements of the spirit in your heart and your life, but it's talking to God. It's asking him that indeed he would guard your heart that you would believe truly that his sacrifice is worthy, you would rest fully in that, and resting fully in that, you then would live like your Christ in kingdom characteristics of mercy and humility and worship. Prayer helps to refocus and reshape and put our thoughts back where they should be. All of these can be done individually. But they're really all community things. Pursuing the Word. You should be pursuing it on your own, but it should be done in community. Bonhoeffer talks about knowing God. He talks about not being able to really get a good picture of God by yourself because God communicates to others, and they, they think and they see differently by God's design. And as they talk and as as they live before their God and, and as they are in the word and you hear that you begin to see God from another perspective and it kind of shapes and helps round out your perspective of God. Watching yourselves, we say that a lot you can't watch yourself by yourself no matter how critical you are, you're always the easiest critic on yourself You need people who can love you and see blind spots in your life and speak truly and honestly, and you need to be able to receive that. And prayerful, yeah, pray by yourself. But coming together with people to prayer and hearing them pray strengthens you, helps you in that focus, knowing they're praying for you, you praying for them. These things are community commands. Commands. The day of the Lord is coming near. It's a day of redemption. We should be living, striving to live our hope. Not perfectly. That's why we pray that God would grant us repentance and faith on a weekly basis. But in such a way that it could be genuine that we would say, even so, Lord, come. That's where our hope, that's where our identity lives. So I encourage you as we begin the new year, do these things. Trust the Word. Watch yourself. Pray purposefully that your heart and mind would be reoriented around that which is real. And that is that we live in the end times. The day of redemption is drawing near. The kingdom is drawing near. We need to live in such a way that we are hopeful and joyful to receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time together. Lord, we pray that You would... Watch over your people now. You would take the word that's been spoken. The Spirit would take that out has been spoken clearly and accurately and plant it deep into the hearts of people. Lord, and you would bring forth fruit, abundance and mercy. Just for a moment, you sit there with your eyes. Close your head bowed. Continue to give a few moments of private response and thoughtfulness. And in just a minute, we'll respond corporately with a song. Worship team come up during his time.